You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 219 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And yes, those crickets chirping where Tracy's voice would normally chime in means that sadly she won't be with us this week. She's visiting family uh, in Arkansas and left me to hold down the fort here in Colorado. And part of holding down the fort is doing the podcast while she's gone. But this will probably be a fairly short episode. Um, the plan is that I'll use this show to get the ball rolling as far as the Battle of Corinth, and then we'll have a longer episode for you next time after Tracy gets back. All right, as you guys will recall, in the last episode, we set the stage for the Battle of Corinth, and at the end of the last show, Union General William Rosecrans had his troops, along with a good number of contrabands, working to strengthen the town's defenses during the last days of September 1862 and the first days of October. Meanwhile, Confederate General Sterling Price and Earl Van Dorn had finally linked up after the Battle of Iuka. Van Dorn took command of the combined rebel force and pretty much immediately put into motion his plan to retake Corinth, and then perhaps he'd move on to even grander things. So, by the end of the last episode, the Confederates had fainted up toward western Tennessee, but then veered off eastward toward their true objective, Corinth, aiming to recapture the vital railroad junction from the Federals. As for the Federals, they knew the Confederates were on the move, but they didn't know where they were heading. Ulysses S. Grant, as department commander, had to cover all his bases, but Rosecrans, at Corinth, was fairly certain that town would be the rebels' target. As I mentioned just a moment ago, work on the College Hill line had been going on at a frantic pace, and work on those positions, which Rosecrans intended would serve as Corinth's main defense, was mostly finished by early October. The College Hill line consisted of a series of five earthen redoubts for artillery covering the south and west sides of town, since it was originally thought those were the directions Van Dorn's and Price's Confederates would be most likely to approach Corinth. Remember we said that those earthen redoubts were individual, detached positions right on the outskirts of town. They were separated from one another by stretches of open ground, so Rosecrans had ordered the digging of connecting infantry trenches and the placement of abatis to strengthen the line. 
Rosecrans wanted the defenses extended to cover the north side of town also, but by the time of the battle, only Battery Powell was finished there. And as for the northeast and southeast approaches to Corinth, well, those remained uncovered by any defenses, except for the old Confederate line. Once Price and Van Dorn joined forces, they had around 21,000 or 22,000 men in total, while Rosecrans had about 20,000 men, divided into four infantry divisions and one cavalry division. Colonel John Misner led Rosecrans' cavalry, while the infantry divisions were commanded by Brigadier Generals David Stanley, Charles Hamilton, Thomas Davies, and Thomas McKean. Rosecrans initially only had about 10,000 men actually at Corinth, since only Davies and McKean were there, while Stanley's and Hamilton's men were stationed at various outposts around the area. Rosecrans started to draw in those two outlying divisions, though, as more reliable information started to come in regarding the Confederates' movements. At first, because of Van Dorn's faint northward, the Yankees remained uncertain as to the rebels' objective. But on October 2nd, when Federal cavalry patrols reported that the Confederates had suddenly veered eastward, Rosecrans knew Corinth was the enemy's target, and Grant came to that conclusion also. Rosecrans initially thought Van Dorn would cut the Mobile and Ohio Railroad north of Corinth to try to force Rosecrans to come out of his defenses for a fight. And at first, Rosecrans was indeed inclined to leave only a skeleton force in Corinth and march out into the countryside with the rest of his force and give battle. But upon reflection, he thought better of it and he hunkered down at Corinth, waiting for the rebels to come to him. Rosecrans moved Hamilton's division to the northern outskirts of town on the Purdy Road to watch for any sign of the enemy. In case Van Dorn decided to take a more direct route to Corinth, Rosecrans also sent Colonel John Oliver's brigade of McKean's division off toward Chihuahua, which was just across the state line in Tennessee and only about 9 or 10 miles northwest of Corinth. It would be Oliver who, on the morning of Friday, October 3rd, would make first contact with the approaching Confederates. Rosecrans dispatched Brigadier General John MacArthur's brigade of McKean's division to help Oliver, but despite the fact that Oliver's brigade was skirmishing with Confederates early on Friday along the Chihuahua Road northwest of Corinth, Rosecrans was forced to play a wait-and-see game all morning, since the rebel movement there might be another of Van Dorn's feints. The Federal commander had to wait and see what developed, and hope that he could respond to events so that he could stop any Confederate attack at the College Hill line, where he was best prepared to meet any enemy assault. And so to be ready to react to any possible rebel move, Rosecrans placed his troops to meet any likely Confederate approach. Hamilton was to the north, Davies was positioned between the two rail lines northwest of town, McKean was to Davies' left, and Stanley's division was placed in reserve on the far left. Wherever the Confederates attacked, those Union troops were to fight a delaying action, while Rosecrans would shift reinforcements to the threatened spot. 
That was the plan anyway. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On the morning of Friday, October 3rd, 1862, the sun rose into a clear sky, and before the day was over, the temperature would hit the 90-degree mark. The Confederate soldiers prepared a quick breakfast of dough on a stick, cooked over a campfire, and that would be the last food many of them would have for the next three days. The Chihuahua Road branched five miles from Corinth, and Price's men crossed the Memphis and Charleston to march north of the rail line, while Mansfield Lovell took the route south of the railroad. When both wings came together again at Cane Creek, a short distance in front of the old Confederate line outside Corinth, they found Oliver's and MacArthur's Federals on the east side of the stream. After some brisk skirmishing, the rebels' superior numbers told, and they pushed across the creek at 8 a.m., and the Yankees fell back to the old Confederate defensive works. After this initial success, Van Dorn moved his headquarters up to the Murphy House on the road taken by Price, and he held a conference of his division commanders. He ordered them to deploy in an arc from the Mobile and Ohio Railroad to the Smithbridge Road, covering the entire northwestern and western approaches to Corinth. On the Confederate left, Price's two divisions, commanded by Louis A. Bear and Dabney Morey, covered the area between the two rail lines. Lovell's division was on the Confederate right, on the far side of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. It took a while for the rebels to form up and start to move out over what one participant described as, quote, irregular ground covered with timber. But by 11 o'clock, the Confederates had formed their line of battle and pressed forward so that all along the arc of their advance, they were in contact with the Union defenders. In Price's sector on the left, Bear deployed two brigades while holding one in reserve, and in the center of the rebel line, Maury did the same. 
Over on the Confederate right, Lovell put all three of his brigades in line and sent them forward. Van Dorn noted that over on the left, Hebert's troops would have to advance against a wooded ridge, so the Confederate commander expected that the rebels' most successful effort would be made by the units in the center and on the right. Accordingly, Hebert was instructed to delay his advance in the hopes that by the time he moved forward, pressure elsewhere along the Federal line would have caused the Yankees in front of Hebert to weaken that part of their line by sending troops to other threatened spots. Van Dorn, in approaching Corinth from the northwest, had gained an advantage over Rosecrans, in that by 11 a.m. the Confederate commander had deployed his entire army against only a portion of the Federal force. If Van Dorn could now attack and punch through the Yankees to his front, he could score a decisive breakthrough and steamroll into Corinth. But the Confederates had to not only contend with the broken and heavily wooded terrain here outside of town, but also rising temperatures that sap their strength, not to mention the stubborn Federal defenders. Van Dorn would struggle all that hot day trying to push his willing but increasingly tired men forward in a difficult assault, as the Federals fought a long delaying action making the rebels pay dearly for closing in on the College Hill line. Really, the fierce fighting on October 3rd would come down to whether Van Dorn could score a decisive breakthrough and smash the Federal defenses before darkness brought an end to the combat, or whether the Yankee defenders on that bloody Friday would be able to hang on and force a second day of battle when they could make their final stand on the College Hill line. Well, I warned you that this was going to be a short episode without Tracy, and that means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Banners to the Breeze, The Kentucky Campaign, Corinth and Stones River by Earl J. Hess. This isn't the first of Hess's books that we've recommended. He's one of our favorite Civil War scholars and authors. And with any book of his, you know it'll be well-written and have solid analysis of whatever the topic happens to be. And here it happens to be these three campaigns and battles during a critical phase of the war in the Western theater. It's good stuff, which, if you've been around long enough, you recognize is pretty much one of the highest compliments we bestow on a book. So that's Banners to the Breeze, The Kentucky Campaign, Corinth and Stones River by Earl J. Hess. I'll remind you that you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we haven't asked in a while, but if you listen to the podcast on iTunes, then please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating, or even taking a minute to leave a five-star review, because, well because that helps other people discover the podcast on iTunes. And we know there are a lot of different ways you guys get your podcasts nowadays, but iTunes is still our number one source of downloads, and those five stars do help. And then, as we're wrapping up this show, and it's getting closer and closer to Christmas, don't forget about checking out Spiritwood Music's 
Christmas album, which we mentioned at the end of the last episode. And before we go, we would be remiss if we didn't give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Karis and Kevin and Jason. And thanks to Bill H. for his donation this past week. Donations are always appreciated. So thanks, Bill. And thanks to each and every one of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.